Welcome to part two of our Eyes Wide Shut episode. Probably want to check out part one before you hear this. Thanks. let's just get into it he says the password he's allowed into the party the password is fidelio also i mean fidelity obviously being a i don't know a theme in this movie or the marital fidelity that we expect of upper class people and which of course is in conflict at this point and i it, obviously it's like a little on the nose for the password but it's also clearly indicative of what kind of themes we're supposed to be wrestling with here so here's a quote from the choreographer, Yolande Snaith. Uh, in her own words, it was a dance movement theme that was erotic and seductive, but not explicit. It was, in her words, the sort of thing that secretive, rich millionaire politicians would attend and to happen in a big mansion. What she designed wasn't an orgy per se, but more suggestive with semi-naked women. So... <laughs> We walk through this party, you know, we are we are seeing everything basically through Bill's eyes. And Sam, what are the sort of rituals? And I mean, this is the big orgy scene, everybody. Right. Or the at least the lead up to it. So there are, you know, masked naked women in a circle. There is a man in a, a red hood with a cloak. And he has this, you know, kind of ritualistic, like, smoking lamp thing. (laughs) Fun fact, he was played by Kubrick's assistant, who we mentioned before, Leon Vitali. And to save money, Vitali played eight different roles in the orgy. Also, the set was no more than 50 degrees throughout that shooting. And the crew had to rent a dozen heaters and left them running for an entire week to make the actors comfortable. Uh, you know, the actresses were all basically naked. So, yeah, that was a big problem. And all the actresses were not, they were not like porn stars or a lot of them were just models. And uh, apparently Kubrick had a bizarre like requirement that they all had to be completely natural. Like their bodies could not be altered by any kind of plastic surgery, <laughs> which again, yeah. maybe that falls under the heading of Kubrick's artistic love of porn or something like that. But um, either way, a lot of them were not like expecting to be in an orgy scene per se. Like they were expecting some sort of kind of ritual scene. And it was funny. There was a, there's a good oral history of the orgy scene on Vulture that came out. I think it was this year. And uh, it discusses how they, uh, a lot of the actresses like were like, you have to pay me more if you want me to have this like extreme (laughs) sex scene with multiple partners. But uh, as you said, like the sex scenes are, it's obviously sex, but it's not, you know, it's not like hardcore (laughs) It's like a a virginal teen's idea of sex or something, you know? It's like, the whole thing is, it has that sort of, I guess, like when we talked about Jeffrey Epstein, the sort of, like, tackiness in its aesthetic, you know? Like, those pictures resurfaced this week of Prince Andrew 
basically attending what seemed like a party just like this, where there was a woman basically in these Kubrickian outfits. Yeah, and I think Kubrick actually said, like, during the filming, the orgy scene, like, if the rich don't do this now, they will start. Like, and a lot of rich people obviously have done, this has become a cliche. I mean, every HBO orgy scene is more risque and more graphic than this one. It has literally become a cliche. And the rich, like Prince Angie, are just putting these on to pretend to be like what the way they were portrayed in this fucking movie. It's such a weird uh, art imitating life and then life imitating art cycle. And uh, you never know which one of which is the chicken or the egg. Of course, the Conspiracy theorists will tell you that Stanley Kubrick saw elites doing this and documented it, and then that's why they killed him or something like that, but I don't think that's true. No, I think uh, you had a 70-year-old man who worked himself basically to death uh, on this film, uh, you know. On this fucking bizarre movie. <laughs> but um, Yeah. So either way, like one of the things that, you know, as I said, the soundtrack to this slaps and uh, the woman who conducted most of the music for this, Jocelyn Pook, was at the time a kind of like relatively unknown experimental slash classical composer. And Kubrick just loved her work and pulled her in. And he apparently like sat her down and was like, let's make sex music. <laughs> And then, like, they had to go, he, you know, she went and composed all this. And I think um, the masked ball sequence is one of the most famous. It's, like, the, it's these strings with uh, bizarre, like, reversed chanting. And it's interesting to me that the the work was originally, uh, like, a, a kind of avant-garde piece that was a musical statement about homophobia and the Catholic Church. Um, the composer Jocelyn Pook you went reel to reel through cassettes of singing priests, reversed their voices, and tried to turn something I guess that's you know was considered heavenly or beautiful into something about the way they were, had this like toxic view on sexuality. And I I think it's like so that that and this music and the other music in the orgy sequence is just so ethereal and well composed and obviously it's also been cliched but i think it stands on its own especially the um the kind of like the more indian influence music that plays when they actually like finish the i guess the ritual in which the circle of women kiss one another in some kind of thing that we're not allowed to know and i also think it's interesting that they i guess tried to Kubrick, I, I think, had to film this scene a bunch of different ways and do a bunch of different takes before he figured out what kind of geometry he wanted for the people to take and then eventually landed on, you know, the iconic circle scene as the guy is chanting. But I, there's like a lot going on here and there's a reason why it is, I guess, so frequently parodied or imitated. And we see this just terrifying long shot of, and again, like throughout we have this sense of like, you know, the masked figures kind of like looking directly at the camera. So the sense is that there's this like demon screaming, looking at you. And they're very grotesque masks. Like that was the, that was a word that popped out to me a lot in this movie, both in the, uh, in the kind of graphic sex scenes that, you know, the reoccurring image of the Naval officer going to town on Nicole Kidman and, um, everything in between is there's a lot of emphasis on the grotesque and the, the word grotesque literally comes from the word for grotto or cave. And there, there is this sense that you've like 
crawled under a rock and you're seeing the bugs scurry around, but there you you don't know what you've discovered. It is it is like very unnerving. And I didn't feel like reading too deep into the occult symbolism, but there is a shit ton of it in this scene. Yeah, this isn't like last podcast on the left. <laughs> Great show. Um we so we have this terrifying zoom in shot where I think it's pretty clear that the two figures and it's theorized that one of them is uh, Ziegler uh, that they notice something's off in like Bill's body language, even though he is masked and cloaked correctly, something looks off about him. Right. Well, maybe they noticed that he got his costume from like the dime store fucking costume <laughs> rental shop at one in the morning. It's not like fitted or anything. They probably noticed that. But beyond that, I got this. The way I read that is that despite the masks and the secrecy, everyone at this event knows one another. They are all the most elite members of society. And this is revealed later on. And, you know, once 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 uh, Dr. Bill talks it out with Ziegler at the end, which we will go into when it comes up, it's. Like I get the sense that even if he wore the mask, that he, you're not really allowed to show up because you're not in the circle. You can find out the password. You can go get the costume. You can pay someone to drive you out there. But at the end of the day, you're just a social climber, and everyone can see it, and everyone can smell it on you. And that's what people are doing when they're like looking at him like that. Absolutely, he simply like does not belong. I mean, these are like a, a you know a different echelon of society. Right. So instantly also uh, one of the women, one of the naked women wearing a mask comes up to him and she seems to recognize him and she pulls him aside and she says, I'm not sure what you think you're doing, but you don't belong here. And later on, she just says, you can't fool them for much longer. And it's just fucking obvious. Like, and then Bill listens to that and literally just fucking ignores her and says, like, leave yep. with me. It's like, don't you think she knows better than you, like, how this shit works? Yeah. <laughs> it's just some... This is what people are like when they're so naive and they have no idea. Sort of the way, like, honestly, like, you know, we roast liberals so much for not understanding how power works politically. It's sort of like that where he thinks, like, oh, well, you, we can just get out of here. No, you fucking can't. Like, what do you think you stumbled into? She kind of leaves him alone or is led away. I can't quite remember. But the men uh, kind of surround the sides of the room and watch other men and women do orgy stuff. And, you know, all continuing to wear the masks, of course. Right. Even when they disrobe from the cloaks, they're still wearing the masks. Cause that's the only your face is your only identifying feature, not your dick or anything like that. Definitely hammers home the voyeuristic nature of such an event. Right. And, and of course, you know, Dr. Bill in this case is a voyeur. He's not participating in the sex. Spoiler alert, folks. He does not fuck in this movie like at all. Bill stumbles through a room of slow dancing, like men in tuxedos and women nude other than their masks. And that's like a weird ass scene. But he's then led into the main hall where... Just everyone is staring at him, and finally, like, that feeling of, like, his gaze, like, is turned against him, and we see these, like, masked figures and these, like, grotesque, as you said, masks staring at him, almost, like, m laughing at him, screaming at him, mocking him. Yeah, they look like gargoyles or something. It's like these sort of, I don't know, these sort of pagan demons... 
another infamous uh you know, score to this comes in. It's the Musica Ricercata, and it is like all minor second interver- intervals. It's, you know, da, da, da. it's like the Jaws theme or something like that. And the masks are just disgusting, like you said, grotesque. Um, and it's clear that he is fucked up. And so the main mask guy or whatever, I don't know what to you know, designate the hierarchy. The character, I think, in, in the uh, book, at least they just call him Red Cloak or like the high priest. <laughs> so either way, uh, Red Cloak asks him, you know, what is the password? And he says, oh, it's Fidelity. He's like, what is the password for the house? And... Um, And Dr. Bill is a fucking idiot, and he says, I seem to have forgotten it. (laughs) What a fucking dope! As if, like, they would be like, oh, well, you know, just remember it next time, bro. No big deal. Enjoy! Please! Take your shoes off! Take your dick out! He's still trying to fit in. He's trying to act like he's comfortable in the situation. It's like, what more do you need to show you that you're completely delusional and you do not belong with these people? And... As we find out later, guess what? There is no second password. But the point is not necessarily to pick the right answer. Dr. Bill is a person who his whole life has picked the right answer and been rewarded for it. But in this circumstance, he's hit a, he's hit a wall and you need to have the context to understand the question. That's what they're asking you. They're not like they're, you can't just you know, weasel your way out of these things. You can't finesse your way out of things. There's, there's not always a test that you can learn the answers to. You Sometimes you're not in the right place and you do not belong. And that's clearly what happens here. I think there is this sense that, you know, as a doctor, he feels like he's the master of like bodies and stuff. But this suddenly he feels very out of control of like his own situation, which like escalates when the red cloaked priest says remove your clothes yeah first he makes him take off the mask and then he's like nah actually everything (laughs) right okay yeah first he says take off your mask which like he bill does do exposing himself and to be honest i don't even think this this was like that big of a moment because they already knew that he didn't belong no, for him, it's like this humiliating thing. For everyone else, they're like, uh, thank God we got that riffraff out of here. He was really stinking the place up. The bizarre culmination of this is that the woman who warned Bill shouts from afar that she will go in his place, like she will be punished in his place. What do you make of this, that she will redeem him is her promise? I don't know. This scene is very weird. It it has the same affected feel as the rest of the dialogue in this, in that it seems like an act that's being put on, even in the, I guess, when it happens in the film. Definitely. And basically, Bill uh, has no real choice, and uh, they kind of agree to this arrangement where this woman will be uh, punished for Bill's trespassing. And Bill is told to never speak of this or they'll hurt his family. The red cloak guy says no one can change her fate now. When a promise is made here, there's no turning back. Go. Right. I, I, 
I get the sense from it that like we're supposed he th- we're supposed to leave this and he's supposed to leave the house with this sense of dread of y- you know we're, we're gonna you, you've seen already the way we treat women in this household you've seen the way we consider them they are sex objects and now you pissed us off and we're gonna take it out on this lady and i mean also i think it just plays to his extreme sexual frustration at this point he clearly would have just in his dumb fantasy he would have just like had sex with this lady and enjoyed himself but it kind of shows also this disconnect between what he thinks sex is or like it's just this fun gratification way to get back at your wife whatever midlife crisis but for these uber wealthy uber powerful people it is this means of like social control and a way to like show the way their power is manifested yeah and it's funny to think of how epstein also had cameras on the orgies at his house right huh <laughs> Yeah, for the blackmail. That's that's what uh that's what Pizzagate's all about. But uh so we cut right from the red priest guy, and this is like crazy because we've just spent this entire fucking night like, you know, taking every fucking step with Bill, and suddenly we cut right to we don't even see how he exits the house. Well, well we do know that the cab driver is still there because that's the way they get him into the main room to be i guess chastised like at the parties they say uh is this your cab driver at the door and it's it's a ruse but i feel like maybe they were they clearly noticed that the guy was just like sitting out there as well and i assume that's the way he got home but yeah we are left to imagine it and if you consider the timeline when he gets home it's like around i think he says like it's around 4 a.m so he'd have like he didn't just like walk home like he he clearly like got straight home after that just if the you know whole nighttime hours of all this shit lines up but regardless um he finds alice shrieking with laughter in her sleep and sam what was she dreaming about so she says that she had a terrible dream. <laughs> she says that uh, sh- she and Dr. Bill were in a deserted cl- city with no clothes, which sort of reminds me of the the mansion party that, I mean, you know, Dr. Bill just left. But either way, he's, she said, as soon as you were gone, it was different. I felt wonderful. And... Now, at this point, it makes me feel like the naval officer is appearing in, like, both partners' dreams. Even if it's not specifically the naval officer in uh, Alice's dream, Tom Cruise has been thinking about it a lot. And it harkens back to what uh, the the guy, the, you know, the Hungarian said in the beginning of the movie at Ziegler's Party that marriages are based on this mutual deception. But she eventually says that there were just all these men fucking her. And she said I, I, that she knew that Dr. Bill could see her and that she wanted to make fun of him and to laugh in his face. <laughs> and of course, when he walks in after his nightly escapade, that she is laughing in her sleep. And that's what when she wakes up. <laughs> so that was her laughing at him. <laughs> Uh, shrieking with laughter in her sleep, but she awakes to feel horrible about it. So let's see how Bill decides to uh, process what happened the night before. Uh, He goes to Nick Nightingale's hotel to see what the hell happened. And there is a shot where Nick is being led out of the party. So it's clear that the, uh, you know, whoever hired him knew, but, 
Bill is told by the hotel clerk, uh, uh, played by Alan Cumming, that uh, Nick checked out at 5 a.m., but Nick was let out by two huge guys in suits, and that Nick had bruises on his face, and he had tried to slip uh, an envelope to the clerk, but the two men stopped him and took him away in a van. Uh, Nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah, not suspicious at all. And the way, of course, that uh, Dr. Bill gets his information out of this poor uh, working class person is uh, he just proceeds to violate HIPAA by claiming that he has to discuss a medical matter and some tests with Nightingale. Uh, And of course, like, I think a theme of this also is that working class people who obviously Dr. Bill is working class, but he's, you know, upper middle class. He, the working class people around him who are like, you know, sex workers or piano players or hotel clerks or concierges or whatever get a way worse treatment from his sexual odyssey than he ever gets, even though the whole movie is him fearing this like insane reprisal from the elite. Oh, totally. Um, we then see Bill returning to the costume shop and the fucking one of the weirdest scenes of the movie where Millich seems to approve of the same men from the night before that he threatened to call the police on for, you know, being nude with his underage daughter. Uh, but he... Uh, seems to be approving of that now as the two Asian men exit the back room with suits and his daughter comes out like partially nude and Bill asks why he didn't call the police and Millage proceeds to offer his daughter to Bill. Yeah. Yeah, he decided within the course of the evening just to become his daughter's pimp. It's pretty uh it's pretty dark and weird and it Again, like you said, is sort of presented in an almost like comical way. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that we are to take from this a certain level of like, oh, there is a certain agreement among all levels of society that that women uh, are sort of these objects that can be, you know, used uh, in this way uh, and, you know, pimped out. Yeah, even even on uh, the small scale of a uh, you know business owner pimping out his daughter, <laughs> it's it's creepy. I think this is one of the only scenes in the film that like explicitly is saying like, oh, there are totally like you know pedos out there. There is this sense of you know this exists at all rungs of uh, society. Um, Bill continues to daydream about Alice fucking the Navy man, cancels all his appointments, and because he has to just return to the fucking orgy house in the daytime where his fucking, like, life was spared. He has the, like, fucking uh, just gall to show back up the next day. Yeah, he, he literally pulls his Range Rover out so he can drive out there and, like, ask to speak to the orgy guy's manager. <laughs> And lo- luck- luckily for him, the the manager appears to be there. So like he shows up, the security camera like zooms in on him when he like arrives at the gate. And I mean, like this is just like one of the most iconic scenes of all time. This old man drives is driven up in a Rolls Royce, and he hands him an envelope through the gate with Bill's full name on there, like Doctor Bill Harford, and it. 
the letter has the most specific wording. It says it ultimately tells him to give up his inquiries, which are completely useless. You know what the funny thing is? Like it's actually it's absolutely right though. It is useless. Yeah, that's the most most apt word for it, honestly. So cut to Bill goes to visit Domino, the sex worker from the night before, but she's not there. And her roommate, who is in the apartment, says that she may not be back because she discovered that she's HIV positive, which I have to say was the uh, my least favorite plot detail in the film. I felt like it was really lame and has not aged well at all and was an implication by Kubrick that Bill dodged a bullet by not sleeping with an HIV-infected woman, sort of buys into the notion of HIV as punishment for deviant immorality. Yeah, and it's uh, I guess it's sort of like a parallel to the way that his life is spared by the, you know, the orgy people. I mean, I don't get the sense that he was ever going to be able to have sex with anyone at the orgy, or even Domino for that matter, but... There is this idea that, like, maybe if he died not partaking and by the woman offering him herself up in his stead, which you could almost argue happens with Domino, um, that he, like, again, it dodged a bullet. And this kind of is corroborated when in the next scene when he goes and buys a newspaper with the f- huge front page headline, Lucky to be Alive. That's right. And... He is at that point being followed by a bald man in a trench coat, you know, as you know, that's what happens when you fuck with the wrong people. Yeah, the Musica Ristricata is playing <laughs> in the background, like the Jaws music. Yeah, and we see Bill duck into a cafe uh, to get away from that guy when he sees a story in the paper about Mandy from the party in the opening of the film. And it says that she overdosed in a hotel and... Get this, the byline on the story, this is one of those moments that spread, this is one of those like kind of images from the film that spread on Twitter since Epstein died, was that this New York Post reporter named Larry Salona, who was an advisor on the film, like his name's in the credits, whose name uh, appears in the fucking Epstein docs. He's like the author of this article about how Mandy died in the movie, but he's actually a real guy, a real New York Post reporter. And he was also this, the fucking re- guy who reported on the fake Ghislaine Maxwell in and out burger photo. So there's something weird going on here, Sam. Uh, any Anything else that stands out from that like viral thread about that? Yeah, didn't he also... he. In 1999, he took a ride with Epstein. Larry Salona is who I'm talking about. He took a ride with Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, and others on the Lolita Express from Teterboro to Palm Beach for a weekend, returning with two extra women. Uh, Teterboro, obviously, you know, is infamous and becoming reported as possibly the hub of Epstein's sex trafficking network. And then in 2019, he was still working for the New York Post. Salona was. And he was the first to report Epstein's suicide attempt, first to report of ex- Epstein's successful suicide, quote unquote. And uh, he was also the first to release photos of Epstein's body. I mean, this thread by at Moon Cult is hilarious. It lays out a lot of these details. I mean, I guess maybe hilarious isn't the word for it. But it, 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 like I said, this will make you believe in conspiracy theories to at least some degree. Yeah, it's like peculiar and 
Well, we'll just say it. I, I, listen, I, I don't know if there's much to this, but when Kubrick dies in 1999, Salona is the one to break the exclusive story, reporting that Kubrick was happy, joking, and completely at peace. Just mm-hmm. a few months later, Salona is the first imper- the first person informed of JFK Jr.'s untimely death and breaks that story as well. Yeah, I mean, people have all these theories about the Kennedys and, you know, that there was a conspiracy theory that Eyes Wide Shut and I think it was on like a fake news website, but that it was based upon the sexual escapades of John F. Kennedy. Oh man. Um, yeah, there's a lot. You know, there's a lot going on. Well, we can rest assured that uh, Kubrick died doing what he loved, thumbing through his enormous pornography collection. Absolutely. Um, Bill is shocked, and a thought pops into his head that can only be answered by him seeing Mandy's body for himself because he thinks it's the same woman who saved him at the orgy. Huh? Did they kill her in place of Bill for his trespassing upon their elite sex party? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) he clearly thinks that his transgression was truly so important and egregious and he's truly made such an impression when, you know, we could... Also, just as plausibly assume that the rich people were like, thank God that guy's gone. That was kind of funny. Now back to our sex party. So he goes, he sees the body for himself, basically like kisses the body. I mean, (laughs) dude, like, what do you do? Like, I mean, let's let's just like ignore the fact that the only confirmed uh, at this point time that he's met this woman is you know, helping her for two minutes uh, recover from what Ziegler claims is an overdose early in the movie. So suddenly he's allowed to just go to the morgue and see her body. It's a little like, it's a little weird. Yeah, it's like, are all doctors just allowed to like pop open like whatever fucking cabinet they want and look at whoever's dead body? That's kind of weird. But it also reminded me of the kind of uh, abandoned sub subplot that, you know the the good doctor is affected by the his prurient thoughts about like his patients in this case with Mandy if he if she is the woman from the from the orgy she's also the woman that he saved while at the at Ziegler's party in the beginning of the movie then basically every scene that she's been in or every time he's interacted with her, she's been naked because when he goes to the morgue and opens up the, you know, the cabinet to look inside and see what happened to her body, she is again naked in front of him. And it's sort of like, it's almost like this, uh, I don't know, necrophilic like trilogy of seeing her, you know, in this voyeuristic way for him. I I don't know. There's something weird going on there. So next, uh, Bill is summoned to, you know, one of the most iconic scenes of the film, Ziegler's pool room. And again, Ziegler is portrayed by uh, the director and sometimes actor Sidney Pollack. And originally it was going to be Harvey Keitel, but he got so annoyed just like waiting around for Kubrick to set up shots. And like he was like, I can't just like I, I don't just have like two years to blow on this movie. I draw the line at 60 takes. So... Ziegler tells Bill that he knows everything. He says Bill is mistaken about things, but that he was uh, at the orgy, and that's how he knew Bill was there, because Ziegler himself was in attendance. 
And because Ziegler saw Bill chatting with Nick Nightingale at his party in, you know, the scene in the beginning of the film, Ziegler presumed that's how Bill knew where the orgy was. Um, I think this is an important time to unpack for a second the role that Judaism plays in the film. Now, (laughs) initially, I think that there was a way bigger sense that the character that Tom Cruise is playing would be a Jewish doctor. And there even were scenes where like uh, the, the, the ruffian teens who, you know, call him uh, anti-gay slurs. uh, They were also going to be calling him anti-Semitic slurs in the original Mm -hmm. version. But Kubrick asked the original writer, um, I think Federico Raphael, something like that. Um, to pull all mentions of Judaism from the script, but clearly the casting of Sidney Pollock, it's kind of uh, keeps playing a, a sort of very Jewish character. It's, <laughs> it's evident. But here's a quote from uh, the Eyes Wide Shut book. But as played by Jewish actor-director Sidney Pollock, Ziegler is Jewish in demeanor and inflection, becoming the film's villain and arguably a matrix of anti-Semitic tropes. Super rich, sexually depraved, debauched, corrupt. This reading of Ziegler as Jewish is confirmed in a fax written by Leon Vitali in April 1999, where he describes Ziegler as rich Jewish businessman about 50, But there is possibly another source. In the wake of the release of A Clockwork Orange in 1972, following the receipt of some anti-Semitic hate mail ranting about filthy Jews, Kubrick had photocopied page 244 from William L. Shearer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It referred to Adolf Ziegler, a mediocre painter who was the president of the Reich Chamber of Fine Art, charged with the responsibility of purging Germany of any degenerate and decadent art. Oh. So the original Ziegler... Is not Jewish. (laughs) ...was in fact a shit artist who was charged with purging Germany of any degenerate, decadent, uh, read, Semitic art. Yeah. So... Knowing that, I think it was interesting of Kubrick, who was himself Jewish, um, to cast Sidney Pollack in this role. He was a director who had worked with Tom Cruise before. Um, I think he had even suggested Tom Cruise to Kubrick for the role, and then later Tom Cruise suggested uh, Pollock for the role after Harvey Keitel dropped out. And... I think that we definitely get a sense of a paternal relationship here, don't we? I think the framing of the scene, the sort of like hand on the shoulder moments, um, it's definitely meant to emphasize a sort of, I almost think Ziegler is a stand-in for Kubrick in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, but there's something so strange about about the way Ziegler like describes this exposition and kind of like something you touched on earlier. He says, you know, nothing happened, but you know, things happened. And it's sort of the way these days with, you know, especially with the Epstein suicide, we get these details, 
but they're not the whole picture. They're not the context that we need. Sort of like, you know, the context we need to answer the question, what is the password for the house? Like, he lets Dr. Bill in on enough details, and Dr. Bill isn't able to piece together enough from what he reads in the newspaper or whatever to put together, like, one likely, I guess, explanation. But then... We, you know, we never get that closure, really. It is ambiguous. And I think that's, like, very relatable to where we're at today with this Epstein shit is we have the story and we have, like, a plausible read of it, but we never get to know. As Alice says in the final scene, like, we're awake now. Right. And she says, and hopefully for a long time to come. But you're not. Your eyes are still wide shut. Like, you... You don't actually get to know what's behind the curtain. And Ziegler is this sort of like, it's sort of like his role in the beginning is this like tantalizing, you know, half translucent window into the world of like the aristocratic or the, you know, the super wealthy or whatever. And even though he feeds you this information, he gives this long explanation, exposition, whatever, and tries to have this like, you know, you got everything. Like, are you? Have you reached closure yet? The answer is no. We don't have any closure. The only closure you get is like you don't knowing that you don't get to know. You get to just remain blissfully ignorant. And Ziegler's like official story, if we can call it that. I mean, are we really supposed to believe that? Well, he had Bill followed, knows exactly where he's been, but that Nick was allowed to fly back to Seattle to his family. I mean, Nick Nightingale, I have to think, would be punished uh, beyond just, like, losing a week of gigs uh, at the jazz club. But on the orgy participants, Ziegler says, if I told you their names, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you their names. You wouldn't sleep very well. Yeah, he says, do you know who those people are? And it's as if, like I said before, like, he knows who they are. They all know each other, but they still wear the mask and they still go through the rigmarole. And it's just, you don't, you don't get to know. They get to know everything and they get to tantalize you with these, you know, images of the grotesque fantasy, fantastic world that they live in. But at the end of the day, you know, all you have is this like tiny sliver that you were of your memories of what you saw for like, how, you know, how long do we even think he was at that party for? And he thinks he's had this window into this other world. He didn't get, he only got the bare tip of the iceberg, if that. No, and he was there for all of, what, 15 minutes? He didn't even smash. So Ziegler says there definitely was no second password and that they easily found his identity through a receipt in his coat pocket or something. Yeah, for the for the costume. <laughs> From like the dime store rainbow costume rental place. Like what? He's such a dullard. This is this is just how social climbers are, though. Bill asks about the woman who saved him at the orgy and Ziegler dismisses her as a hooker. Ziegler says, suppose I told you everything that happened there was staged a charade. It was fake. Uh, Bill, why would they do that? Ziegler, why? In plain words, to scare the living shit out of you, to keep you quiet about where you'd been and what you've seen. 
And that, as I said, is kind of a charitable explanation to Dr. Bill. It suggests that, that what he saw was somehow important. But I don't know. My reading of it is like it's completely insignificant. They're laughing at you. But he is saying, like, I'm giving you a chance to just walk away and just, just you know, like, you, you move, like just move on. And to Bill, uh, as I think, you know, the fucking viewer of the, of the film is, and I think this is intentional, you know, you're dying for answers. Right. And it's also almost, I mean, if you want to take, like, a meta look at this, it's the, the director, it's Kubrick or the writer telling you, the viewer, you also don't get to know. You're probably wondering, like, what happened almost as much as gullible, impressionable, clueless Dr. Bill, but you're in no position better than him, despite the fact that you're the audience member, and you can rewatch this as many times as you want. And it, in itself, just like... You know, Dr. Bill only got his limited time in the orgy sequence. That's all you got also. That's all you got. Uh, this entire movie is just like your sliver of what, you know, happened in quote unquote, you know, objective reality. Exactly. And I think that's kind of what I meant before when I said he is a sort of stand in for Kubrick in a sense. He is kind of telling the viewer, hey, I'm sh- I'm giving you a glimpse of this, but y- there is nothing more I can tell you. Before uh, we leave this scene, I just want to say Ziegler says that Mandy was actually the woman at the party who offered to save Bill, but that she was fine when she went home and that the OD story was actually legit, suggesting that the Larry Salona crafted New York Post story was legit, that that the official story was actually true. And Ziegler tries to comfort Bill saying like hey i know you were into this conspiracy you know but don't worry son you you know life goes on it it all you know it all everything works out till it doesn't which is like ominous but he's still i think sam trying to put bill at ease right no for sure and this kind of is why i feel like the elites in this case it's not that they actually want to scare him. I think they're just fucking with him. I think they're playing a joke on him because that's that's what we all are to the elites is a joke where they're playthings. It's like in Trading Places, you know, the those elite investors pit Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd against one another and trade their places because they have the power to do so and they're just bored. And I think that after Ziegler sets the good doctor's mind at ease they want to play one last prank on him so he comes home and what does he see sitting on his pillow next to his sleeping wife but the mask that he thought he left at the orgy party and he starts weeping uh alice wakes up and she starts crying and screaming when she sees it and he says i'll tell you everything yes and it's important here that we cut we don't see what he actually tells her so we don't get a sense of what he was actually willing to say if he did in fact tell her everything but that's true i think that the i think it is implied in the final scene that he basically told her what happened um and and i think that's a fair interpretation because as i said he is so fucking gullible and impressionable and childlike that I, I would expect him to be a, a dumb, honest patsy on, to the best of his ability because he doesn't even know what, what happened. <laughs> Some people suggest that she put the that Alice herself put the mask on the pillow to be like, hey, Dick, I know, I, you know, I know, I know that you were, you know, d- 
doing stupid shit with you know without me. Um, but I I don't I don't see that reading as making quite as much sense given her reaction later. I would only see it that way if like one of the one of the masquerade people showed up and then they told her everything that happened and gave her the mask and said, "Now you better threaten him." I, if they orchestrated it, I would believe it. But otherwise, no, I don't. I, I th- and I think that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> So the ending of the film is they go Christmas shopping and essentially decide to move on and embrace, you know, the domestic life. Uh, Alice says the important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. There is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. Bill, what's that? Alice, fuck. And that's the final scene of the movie. That is the scene like that. Kubrick wouldn't let anyone fucking see that. He famously like, did not show the script with like anyone. Like the studio barely knew like how the movie was, you know, gonna shape up. Kubrick himself barely knew how the movie was gonna shape up as he was making it. Um I would also like to insert my comment here that since fucking a movie as stupid as Top Gun is getting a big budget reboot, uh, despite the original director Tony Scott passing away. I demand a Eyes Wide Shut reboot where Tom Cruise hunts Jeffrey Epstein and his associates. <laughs> I mean, who who are you going to have directing that? David Lynch. Oh, I mean, if he did that, it would be perfect. But something about David Lynch strikes me as him not wanting to pick up another director's work. Who knows, though? He's He's always willing to come out of left field. So maybe you should pitch that to him. Definitely. So this final scene, how do we, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on this ending? I mean, I, it kind of plays into my interpretation that you don't get to know. I mean, we don't get to know what happens after this. We don't know how their relationship, we kind of assume that their relationship will continue the way it was in the, you know, the waltz of married life. But I don't know. It is. It's ambiguous. It's weird. I can see why it, it doesn't give you any resolution. I can see why. I mean, the critical reception of this was pretty ruthless when it came out, and it. And it, yeah, it it it's unsettling, and it doesn't give you any kind of real resolution. So there were a few explanations in the Eyes Wide Shut book about the title. I thought the one that made the most sense to how. I think we read the film is uh, encompassed in this quote. A correspondent to the Guardian newspaper wrote how he, quote, had a close friend who appears in the film and over many weeks on the shoot, he came to know Kubrick. He goes on to say how the friend told the correspondent, quote, that the director often repeated to friends and colleagues an aphorism of his own coinage. Governments, politicians, and generals are leading the world to destruction with their eyes wide shut. Hmm. I think that fits with our interpretation of this as, uh, I don't know, kind of a document of the inertia that propels us forward in you know late capitalism, in our lives, in our relationships, in our jobs. I think that's very applicable. I think it's just astonishing how much the American critics panned this film. I mean, 
I think that after Kubrick died and he was notoriously meticulous, even in like marketing uh, his films, like he would, you know, he would make every decision for even like what voices like dubbed over the foreign language versions of his films. Like he oversaw everything. So I think that critics uh, were misled by a publicity campaign put together by Warner Brothers that implied the film would be this like erotic thriller, which while it has like erotic elements, like I would not call it that. And if you watch the trailer, like the, the 30 and 60 second spots that they put together, it definitely is not portrayed by these ads as like the slow burn that it is. No. And you know, as we said, it is almost a mark of a good artist if your work has to be reevaluated over years before people fully get it and then they learn to appreciate it the way I think people have learned to appreciate Eyes Wide Shut. But I know some of the reviews are just fucking hilarious. There is one thing that stands out to me so much about the criticism. And I'm looking at one by the Washington Post that came out when the movie came out. But it, I think in the 90s, we were a lot more liberal on certain things. And one of the common criticisms of this movie is that the sexuality is not, it's kind of dated sounding. Like the Washington Post even said that Eyes Wide Shut turned out to be the dirtiest movie of 1958. He, it went on to say that it felt creaky, ancient, hopelessly out of touch, infatuated with the hot taboos of Kubrick's youth and unable to connect with the twisty thing contemporary sexuality has become. And it, it reads weird to me because... I w- we Dan and I were born in the 90s and we grew up in the 90s but we were still like kids by the time the 90s were over. And when the 90s ended something really fucking big happened. I mean 9/11 happened and I think some of the things that I don't know some of the progress we had made in terms of sex positivity I think were turned back because a lot of things were turned back in that kind of Republican sur- resurgence of the Bush years and definitely the early Bush years when you couldn't criticize George Bush at all and everyone was terrified that, you know, 9-11 was going to happen again. We were hearing things like the best way to get back at the terrorists who did 9-11 was to go shopping and like almost this like Reagan-esque, you know, recall, re-hearkening to this imagined traditional American history. And... Also, this time we saw the religious right come up, and I genuinely think that they kind of rolled back what was acceptable in public discourse to talk about in sex or the way it was able to be portrayed. And obviously, sexuality has proliferated in other media, and it will only continue to do so. And I think now that the, the it's changing a bit, but I still remember those Bush years where everyone was like so weirdly prude. And it's funny to me that like in 1999, when this came out, this was like, oh, you know, after like years of the, the Lewinsky scandals and basically everyone ex- accepting the fact that, Don, you know, Bill Clinton jizzed on Monica Lewinsky's dress and it was presented as evidence in court. Like, it's almost as if like sex was so publicly discussed then that the weird like clandestine nature of the sex in this movie seemed dated to them because they were like, oh no, they would just be they would just, it's it's the '90s, baby. They just be fucking free love. Yeah, like the president's like coming on the news. Yeah, yeah. Like the '90s were weirdly like the nineteen like almost like a watershed moment like the nineteen sixties for like this weird sexuality. 
So why do you think this like wasn't enough for these critics? I mean, still, I'm just like, how could you watch this movie? I mean, the last quote I will share from this book, and again, it's fantastic if you're into this movie, by Robert P. Kolker with a K and Nathan Abrams, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick in the making of his final film. Uh, this is about uh, the critics at that time. Um our official arbiters of culture have lost the gift of being able to comprehend a work of art that does not reflect their immediate experience, wrote Lee Siegel. They have become afraid of genuine art. Art phobia is now the dominant sensibility of the official culture, and art phobia annihilated Stanley Kubrick's autumnal work. I totally agree with this sentiment that, and we see it now with the way kind of film criticism is where like you know marvel movies are treated as like high art <laughs> i mean you know what i mean yeah absolutely and i'm not sure if it's my favorite kubrick movie but it's one of the top ones it's, it's got to be the one that's like the most it's the most like art film of all of his work that i can think of I would say maybe Space Odyssey would, oh, yeah. would take that in terms of being more like about this kind of visual poetry and not even focusing on the dialogue so much. But I don't know. This um this one definitely is one of his most surreal movies, which is saying something for an artist who, you know, does dabble in these kind of, you know, bizarre, uncomfortable images. But I think the way, the the thing that really frustrated cl- critics with of this movie is it's it's just impenetrable. I think that's the word for it. Like you can't you like Dr. Bill, you don't really get to know what the plot ha- ends up being. It's hard to tell at the end. I remember the first time I watched it thinking what was that about? And then I realized no, a lot happened to that movie and I remember all the plot details, but it just doesn't offer you this easy resolution and it's challenging. And I I think that a lot of critics despite the fact that they claim that they love, you know, all this innovation or whatsoever, they're so interested in evaluating the artistic merits of what they see. I think they come to expect things and Kubrick never has been one to give you what you think you were, you know, he's never been one to give you what you thought you showed up for, if that makes sense. And I think that that's, still i don't know aggravating and i think also at this point he had established this reputation as being a legendary director so at this point i felt like you know maybe the critics were going to say something like oh we finally we get it we get kubrick he's dead and we can understand his work but instead he hands them this like completely impenetrable piece of you know almost art house film and they once again didn't know what the fuck the fuck to do with it and they complained i think that's what that's the sense i get it's like the all the reviews that i've read it seems like kids who are just like frustrated they didn't understand it it's like when they when people read a book and it's too dense for them and then they're like oh it's bad and boring it's like "Mm, it's not bad and boring for people who took the time to like go through it and think about it but maybe it is for you because it didn't offer you this easy reward so to sum it all up, um, yeah, I would say to me, this might be probably my favorite Kubrick film other than The Shining, I guess. But I think Eyes Wide Shut is just it's it's very rich uh, in revisiting it. You just notice more and more shit every time and how like, you know, a lot of the 
decisions Kubrick made with lighting, with color, you know, with these Christmas, constant like Christmas imagery with occult symbolism that is appearing throughout. I mean, even in like the fucking art in people's houses, like there's a few instances of that. Like you could spend a whole fucking hour just going through the different art pieces in the movie. This is a rich, just like easily rewatchable film. And uh, yeah, it's uh, there's not a ton of movies where I would want to read like a whole book about that one movie, you know? Oh, absolutely. And of course, like all the backstories and tales that people have of dealing with Kubrick on this shoot are endless material. And of course, all the, I guess, contemporary conspiracy theories that go along with it could send you into an even further rabbit hole. But for me, what I really love about this film and what I think makes it so important for the Epstein era is that tricky thing it does where it shows you like the way Ziegler does with his exposition. It shows you a little bit like enough to get your appetite whetted and enough to like have you asking a lot of questions and have you imagining a lot of weird things behind the door, but it never tells you what it is and it never delivers on that. And that's like, it's just so, it's such a genius work of art. And it's such a, I don't know, I think it really shows what, it really almost is like a metaphor for for movies themselves, for the the art of like producing this stream of images, this duration of video or whatever that tells this story through just what you're able to see and hear and, you know, what appears in the work. And it like messes with that concept so much. And it's so, I don't know, just very rewarding. Like you said, when you rewatch it and you, you feel like you notice another little thing that gives you some other clue into like what actually happened in the film. But at the end of the day, it is, I I don't know, as inscrutable and impenetrable as ever, but still like so fabulously rewarding. And I think like walking that balance is so genius and so, I don't know, unique. So I know we didn't like do a ton of the conspiracy angles on this, but there are other podcasts for that. I think we really just wanted to talk about, you know, the, the film itself on its own merits because I I looked into a little bit the, you know, uh, Kubrick discovered the Illuminati sex ring and was murdered for it. It just, it, you know, it just, I don't, I don't see it. He was an out of shape uh, man in his mid seventies, who, uh, by some accounts, I, I uh, read uh, an account from his assistant that said, like, sometimes he would have to, like, carry Kubrick from, like, the front door to his bed just so he could, like, you know, because he, he was, like, passing out of exhaustion after, like, leaving set at, like, 4 a.m. working all day. So, I mean, this is, like, this is, like, a man who, like, pulverized his body from production to through post-production like up until his death and um additionally you know this was like if you're like a kubrick head i mean this uh, you know there's not nothing richer than this this was this was the thing that he gestated on for 50 years and unlike his like aborted um movie about napoleon and his uh movie about the holocaust like this was something he spent all the years on and actually got to make so it is just, uh, I mean, again, like it's, it was the longest film shoot in history. I mean, this is, uh, it's its definitely a, a special work. And uh, did it destroy Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's marriage? Who's to say? 
I feel like there were some other factors involved that might have uh, might have driven a wedge there, like the Church of Scientology and such. But um, yeah, I would say I agree with you that this is sort of the Kubrickiest Kubrick movie. And he did tell his wife that it was his favorite film he'd ever done. And if you love all that weird Kubricky goodness, then this will give you the most chew on, I think, of any of his films. All right, I think we did it. That's right, folks. And our next episode will be way lighter after the like multi-part, uh, you know, clandestine sex pervertry that we've been doing for the last few episodes. Oh, I was thinking that I think maybe we have uh, the Jeffrey Epstein figure in this movie is in fact Nick Nightingale because Nick opens up this like dark underbelly to an outsider just as epstein has opened up this dark underbelly to us all yeah i mean i guess uh pinpointing his exact location in the film is certainly up for debate i feel like some people could make the case that he's a ziggler but i don't see jeffrey epstein offering up even the kind of uh exposition that ziggler offers later on so who knows all right folks uh that'll do it again uh you know i've I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation. I know it's long uh, and it's deep and it's, uh, you know, this is this is a movie that I, you know, I, I've been dying to talk about. And it just seemed like the right time. Yeah. If you were going to have to sit through our long winded explanation of this film, you might as well do it now when it's timely. We're around like the 10th anniversary of this film coming out as well. So. 20th. Oh, shit. God, we're old as hell. Yeah. Nah, I beg for the sweet release of death. But beyond that, uh, I'll keep I'll hang around for our next episode. So tune in for that and all of our upcoming stuff. And, you know, follow us on the stuff. Follow me at Wagstank. Follow Dan at Speventacular. And uh, re- review and rate us five stars on iTunes, please. We need some more of those. Uh, no, thank you for to everyone who has reviewed it. Like it's, I, I don't know, it makes me feel all nice inside when I read through them. And I think we still have a solid five star rating, so that that helps in some way. We just need to get more of those, and then uh, don't be start- that one star that really fucks it all up for us. Ah, uh, don't be like the critics of Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, don't do any irony uh, one-star reviews either. That's that's fucked up. <laughs> and uh, in case you didn't know, if you like to listen on the Google Podcasts app, we're on there. Uh, and, of course, as you know, we're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify, Spotify now is the big one. Yeah, Happy we make pro- approximately $2 billion a year from Spotify now, so uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so play us when you're asleep so we can get a nickel. Yeah, we can get like uh, one of my friends. Literally, is like a a, a working musician. He he has a ton of his stuff on Spotify, and he makes like he said he makes like literally pennies from Spotify royalties. It's ridiculous. Well, uh, you know that's better than us, where we make zero. Yeah, but we do it for the love. That's true, and we will hopefully soon be getting back to a weekly release schedule. Just uh, we need a break. (laughs) Um, anything else, Sam? No, I mean, definitely stick around for our new, more lighthearted episodes to come. <laughs> All right, that's it. Bye-bye.